Uh, as Brittany said, we are finishing our series today on the Old Testament names of God, and we are finishing with Jesus, and particularly his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because Jesus is, as we're going to find out, uh, if you're taking notes today on the outline, he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament names. He is the embodiment of all of those names, and he is the one that activates the power of all of those names in our lives. I'm going to talk about that today. Emmanuel, uh, as I said, embodies and fulfills the names that we've looked at so far because he is Jesus, and that name connects him with, with God and his identity. Jesus' name comes from Isaiah's prophecy. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14, the prophet uh, foretold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then two chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, he writes, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And I love how the Holy Spirit sovereignly and beautifully uh, oversaw the process of inspiration how God used human agents to record the truth of Scripture, and so uh, it retains the accuracy and the truth of what God intended, and God crafted it in such a way to communicate exactly what he intended to say. So the wording there is that a child is born and a son is given, which is a little interesting, but a child is given because Jesus the Son existed before the child that was born. And the virgin gave birth to a child, but the child existed even before the virgin became pregnant. Therefore, the son was given, not born. I love how God communicates that. We see many places in Scripture the pre-existence of Jesus, how his life, he's eternal, he's God. He's the second member of the Holy Trinity. But Genesis 1.27, you know, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, even in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he said, Father, now glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. So we see that God stooped through the incarnation and took on human flesh in order that he might reveal to us who God was and what God was like, but that Jesus' life did not begin with the manger. So I want to kind of walk you through, as Brittany did so beautifully in that, in that uh, intro today, all of the Old Testament names of God and how Jesus fulfills every single one of them, how he embodies every single one of them and how he activates the power of each one of those in our lives. And even uh, for all the names that we didn't go over in the Old Testament, names of God, um, Jesus does that as well, although we're not going to get into that today. But the first uh, name that he fulfills, point number one is he's the fulfillment, and the first name that he fulfills is Elohim. Jesus is the creator God. We read in Colossians in the New Testament in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. Stop there for a moment, because what scripture is saying here is that Jesus is eternal. It's not just saying that he existed before anything else was created because the cults will say that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning that God created him and then he created everything else. That is not what scripture is saying and that is completely inaccurate. 
because Jesus wouldn't be God if he was created. He wouldn't be eternal. But he existed before everything, and he is supreme over all creation. Verse 16, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all things together. So Elohim, the creator God, Jesus is that God. That is who he is. Secondly, Jesus is Jehovah, the relational God. Week two, we talked about that. In John chapter 14, verse 23, in John 17, Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say, and my Father will love them, and we will come, and we will make our home in each one of them. How much more intimate than having a relationship with God through Jesus is to have God indwelling us, living inside of us. Not living in a temple made by human hands, but living inside the flesh and bone that he created. We are now the temple of God. He lives in us. And that's the intimacy and the closeness that we have with him. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. And I in them and you in me, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Greek is better. The Word was toward God, and the Word was God. It's like from the very beginning, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were this were the three people in kind of in a group session having this wonderful relationship and fellowship, and you and I have been invited into that relationship and that fellowship. We have been adopted as children of God. What an awesome thing that is. Well, thirdly, Jesus is Adonai. He is Lord and Master. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus our Lord. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture says that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's just, that's the future. That's the the position and the lordship that he holds. That word Lord, by the way, is used uh, 650 times in the New Testament. And at least 600 of those reply or, or apply and pertain to Jesus. The lordship of Jesus. It's throughout the New Testament. It's powerful. Luke chapter 8, 22 and 24. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. And they sailed across as they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water, and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke up Jesus, shouting, Master, Master. They only called him Master a few times. It's interesting to look at when the disciples called him Master. Another one of those times was the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter and John got to go to the top of the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured in all of his glory before them. And they said, 
Master, shall we build a, a tabernacle for you? There's a few times, they did, and this is one of those, when they're in a life and death situation, and even though they're fishermen, many of them, they are fearing for their lives, and they say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and suddenly the storm stopped and was calm. And that was one of the moments when they realized they were in the presence of divinity, because only Yahweh God had power over the chaos of the sea. Only God could create the sea, and only he could control the sea. The sea was the place where most people died in the ancient world because it was just chaotic, uncontrollable, and Jesus calmed it, and that spoke volumes to them. Well, Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. The woman at the well came to Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone drinks of the water that I give them, they will never thirst again. Philippians 4, verse 19, one of my favorite verses where the Apostle Paul, just as a personal testimony, says, my God will supply, will provide all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's the nature of our God. He provides everything we need, and he does that through Jesus. Well, Jesus is also Jehovah Shalom, our peace. John 14 and John 16, Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. <clears throat> do not let your heart be troubled and do not let it be fearful. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. I love that. I mean, if you've ever gone to a book that you're really excited about and you peek ahead at how it ends and knowing how the book ends that informs the rest of what you read and you're just you're so anticipating and excited because you know that everything is going to work out that that scripture friends all of the prophecy that lies ahead of us is not just wishful thinking but it's certain it, it's 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 truth that God has given to us it's what he's promised us we know how the story ends and so we can live life working backwards in light of those realities and truth, how powerful that is. Well, Jesus is Jehovah-Rohi, our shepherd. John chapter 10, the famous part of Scripture where Jesus speaks of himself as a shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Part of my uh, education at, at college and seminary was reading ancient Near East literature, which I have told the staff many times is a good way to put yourself to sleep because I had to read hundreds and hundreds of pages of this technical writing that was written 2,000 years ago that is, blows Shakespeare away in terms of like, this does not make sense, what did I just read? But I will attest to you that every other religion of the world Christianity is unique in so many different ways, and one of the most profound ways is there is not another religion where a God personally gives himself and lays down his life for his people, to redeem his people, to forgive his people, to take away their sins. Powerful, powerful. And that's what sets Christianity apart. And that's the message that we continually uh, proclaim, is that every other religion says, this is what you need to do in order to have favor and acceptance with God and Christianity is the only religion that says this is what God has already done for you through Jesus to make things right. That's, 
That's, it says it all right there. Well, he's not only our shepherd, he is Jehovah Mekadishkim, which is a fancy word for our sanctifier. 1 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 5. But God's, by God's doing, you are all in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Sanctification is just a fancy theological word for cleansing, for purity. He's washed us. He's made us clean. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, so that he might cleanse her, purify her. Well, Jesus is also Jehovah Rapha, our healer. Matthew 4 and Acts 10. Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Acts 10, 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Of course, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is El Shaddai, the Almighty One, the All-Sufficient One. Revelation 1, verse 8, the last book of the Bible, Jesus proclaims, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is, the one who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I am the one who was and who is and who is to come. He's with us in our past, in our present, and in our future. He's the Almighty One, the All-Sufficient One. And finally, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's our, our text today. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 said, Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. By the way, people always ask, you know, what's the right spelling, Emmanuel with an E or Emmanuel with an I? And both are correct just matters which language that you're transliterating from, but they both communicate the same name for Jesus. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata said in her book, uh, Lamp Unto My Feet. She said, just think, every promise that God has made for us finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God doesn't just give us grace. He gives us Jesus, the Lord of grace. If it's peace, it's only found in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Even life itself is found in the resurrection and the new life that God provides through Jesus. Christianity isn't all that complicated. It's Jesus. Friends, that's it. Jesus is the key. <clears throat> if you know Jesus, <clears throat> if you have Jesus in your life, you have all that he brings. He activates the power of God, the work of God, the names of God, he, he, he is everything. So Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament names. Secondly, he embodies them. He embodies them. The New Testament book of Hebrews, uh, in that book we become privy to a conversation between God, the Father, and God the Son, in which they talk about Christ coming to earth as a man to do the Father's will. And this is that conversation in Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given or prepared for me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or with offerings for sin. Then I said, look, 
I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. So Jesus is the one who willingly volunteered to come to earth and take on human flesh to redeem us. As we've said so many times, he was not like Abraham's son Isaac, who was duped into being a sacrifice that he didn't know about. He willingly came. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Philippians 2, Jesus didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, to hold on to as an entitlement, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That's the God that we worship and serve and know. So he's the embodiment of all of this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. If you've ever had other religions come to your front door and argue about how Jesus is just a prophet, a teacher, a good man, the son of God, the firstborn of creation, but not God, you need to know that's the difference between every other religion and Christianity. Most other religions believe that Jesus is not God, and we affirm that, no, he is God, and that's what scripture proclaims. But they will argue even verses like this, but you need to know again that the New Testament was written in the language of Greek. And in the Greek word, uh, world, especially the philosophers of the day, they talked about a term called essential nature. And if two things had the same essential nature, they were one and the same. They were indistinguishable. And that's exactly what Hebrews is proclaiming here. That Jesus has the essential nature of God. That he is God's glory the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. The Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm sorry, uh, yes, verse 9, when he says, In Jesus, all of the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. In Jesus, all of the fullness of God dwells or resides or lives in bodily form. Jesus is God in human flesh. We've talked about before that through the centuries, there have been critics of Christ that argue that Jesus was just a good man. He was just a good teacher, a prophet who discovered all of these prophecies about the Messiah and thought, you know what, I'll fulfill those and people will think I'm him. And as ludicrous as that is, a lot of people buy into that like, yeah, that's what he did. Just a really clever guy, you know, a little bit more intelligent than the average person. Except that so many of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled are things that are humanly impossible. They can only be orchestrated on a divine level, like planning where you're going to be born in, in, in Bethlehem and who you're going to be born to, a virgin. Like, try and work that out. Um, planning how you're going to die. And what's going to be done to you as you hang helplessly nailed to a cross? How do you control what's happening to you when you're nailed to a cross? How do you control where you're buried in a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid? How do you control that three days later you will raise yourself from the dead? On and on and on. It's just ludicrous to, to think that anybody could believe that, but some have. And that's why I say that Jesus not only fulfills all of the names of God, he embodies them. 
He didn't just accomplish the work of what each name means. He is every single one of those. He is our peace. He is our strength. He is our healing. He is our shepherd. Every single one of those as we just walk through Scripture and saw. I read a, a, a story this week that I've shared before with you, but I, I thought it bared repeating because of the point that it makes. David Greenglass was a World War II traitor. He gave atomic secrets to the Soviet Union and then fled to Mexico after the war. His conspirators arranged to help him by planning a meeting with the secretary of the Soviet ambassador in Mexico City. Proper identification for both parties became vital. Greenglass was to identify himself with six pre-arranged signs. And these instructions had been given to both the secretary and Greenglass so that there would be no possibility of making a mistake. Here were the signs. Number one, once in Mexico City, Greenglass was to write a note to the secretary signing his name as I. Jackson. Number two, after three days, he was to go to the Plaza de Colón in Mexico City. And number three, stand before the statue of Columbus. Number four, with his middle finger placed in a guidebook. In addition, when he was approached, he was to say it was a magnificent statue that, and, that, and, he, and that he was from Oklahoma. At that point, the secretary was to give him his passport because they would know at that point that an imposter, a fraud, wouldn't know all these things, and so it was to confirm the identity. It says these six prearranged signs worked. Why? With six identifying characteristics, it was impossible for the secretary not to identify green glass as the proper contact. The person goes on to say, how true then it must be that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, for he had 456 identifying characteristics that were written and prophesied about him in advance. Friends, a clever person, an intelligent person does not go about fulfilling 456 signs proclaimed about them by all sorts of different authors throughout all sorts of different centuries. Jesus is the embodiment of God. And finally, Jesus activates the power of God in each one of our lives. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus. Jesus ushered in and brought grace and truth to us. Romans 3.24, Paul says, Being justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Jesus has justified us and redeemed us through his death on the cross. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus activates victory in our lives. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, I, and I need to tell you, as I have so many times, that this is not written in sexist language. Like, oh, why doesn't it say sons and daughters? of No, because it's written in a time where it meant nothing to be a daughter. It meant everything to be a son. The son had the birthright. The son was the heir. The son had all of the rights and privileges. And so what Scripture is trying to articulate is not dissing women, but saying that a woman has every right and entitlement that men have. We are all sons of God. It's not sons and then daughters and children. 
It's we are all sons, and that's what it's communicating. Finally, 1 Peter 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Scripture says if you're going to lay up treasure for yourselves, lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth can destroy where neither rust can tarnish and where thieves can't break in and steal. And God says, that's where your treasure is reserved, securely, firmly in my hand, awaiting you. And Jesus has secured it for you. Friends, from the beginning to the end, Jesus is the visible manifestation of God's character and names. There's no place that we can look and not see Jesus. He is everything and he is everywhere. That's why, as we read in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I, I read a story that week that so beautifully communicated for me the, the reality that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And I love it because this guy, this professor, talks about how Jesus was present and tangible for him. Jesus provided for him. Uh, Jesus is all the things that he, even though this guy's situation was horrible. This is what he says. John W. Fountain is a professor of journalism at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was formerly a national correspondent for the New York Times. <clears throat> this is his testimony in the NPR, NPR series, This I Believe. He says, I believe in God, not that cosmic, intangible spirit in the sky that mama told me as a little boy, was always there and would always be. But the God who embraced me when Daddy disappeared from our lives. From my life at age four, the night police led him down the stairs, away from our front door in handcuffs. The God who warmed me when we could see our breath inside our freezing apartment, when the gas was disconnected in the dead of winter, and another wind uh, whipped Chicago winter, and there was no food, little hope, and no hot water. The God who held my, my hand when I witnessed boys in my hood swallowed by the elements, by death and by hopelessness, who claimed me when I felt like I was no man's son, amid the absence of any man to wrap his arms around me and tell me that everything was going to be okay, to speak proudly of me and to call me a son. I believe in God, God the Father embodied in His Son, Jesus Christ, the God who allowed me to feel His presence, whether by the warmth that filled my belly like hot chocolate on a cold afternoon, and that voice whenever I found myself in the tempest of life's storms, telling me even when I was told that I was nothing, that I was something, and that I was His. And that even amid the desertion of the man who gave me his name and DNA and little else I might find in him sustenance. I believe in God, the God who I have come to know as Father, as Abba, Daddy. It wasn't until many years later, standing over my father's grave for a conversation long overdue, that my tears flowed and I told him about the man I had become. I told him about how much 
I wished that he had been in my life, and I realized fully that in his absence I had found another, or that he, God the Father, God my Father, had found me. I thought, what a beautiful illustration of somebody who had so much lacking, and by every worldly uh, testimony would say, God has abandoned you, God is, he must not like you to give you the, and he said, no, God was there, God was present, God was with me, God was my provider, God was my healer, God was my strength, my peace. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one that they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick and give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners and to proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator, come to earth in the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as the suffering servant, and the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is the Lord, our God, the Savior of the world, the substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderful than we can fully comprehend. I love that. Another person writes this, the emotional power of Isaiah 9 lies not only in the Messiah's titles, but in their cumulative effect. They are more than their sum. Spoken together or sung, as in the oratorio from Handel's Messiah, they convey a sense of majesty that can't be captured by any one title, no matter how lofty. In his earthly ministry, Jesus labored tirelessly in obscurity, unheralded, humbly serving the people over whom he had every right to reign, laying down his life for them. But today, he claims the throne of our lives. Behold, behold, Jesus the Christ, the second Adam, the bright and morning star, the first and the last, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, mighty second person of the Trinity, son of David, son of man, word of God incarnate, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The question is, will we allow Him to live and to dwell in our hearts? Will we, will we invite Him to be part of our families, to be part of our workplace, to be part of this church? Let's pray. Father God, as we approach Your table this morning, the communion table that You instituted before You gave Your life, Your body, and Your blood, we thank you that you have made a way back to God. That 
Christianity is not just another religion with all of its rules and regulations of things that we have to do to earn God's favor. But Christianity is the record and the testimony of what God has already done through you, through His Son, Emmanuel, to secure favor with you, eternal forgiveness, and standing with you as your sons and daughters for all of eternity. God, we thank you for that. That salvation is a free gift by grace. That if we would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, if we would believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead, that we would be saved. That's what scripture says. As Paul says, for by grace we are saved and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And Father, that's what we proclaim today as we celebrate your death and resurrection. And so we ask that you would meet us during this time right now as we partake of the bread and the cup. We give you ourselves, we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen.